everybody and welcome to the Kaylorin's Podcast, Volume 5, Issue 239. You can play along with us as we race, continuing towards the end of our fifth year. Uh, next up we have D4, Dark Dreams Don't Die. That's a short one for you. I'm not sure it's supposed to be staying that short, but I'm sure that's something the panel will talk about. The less short Tony Hawk's Pro Skater series, Late Lamented as it stands, Will There Be More? find out after that is alien isolation then we return to the 90s for broken sword the shadow of the templars or that's the game also known as circle of blood in america and then we return to our zelda series with twilight princess remember canarince.com is the place to go where we have articles features reviews interviews uh, recently just uh, about to put an interview up. Actually, it will be, will be up by the time you hear this. An interview up with uh, Creative Minds Behind the Talos Principle. We've also had a review of the first episode of uh, Telltale's Batman. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not like dozens of articles every day, but there's stuff to look at every week on there. Videos as well. And of course, we have a friendly forum uh, and a Facebook page and a YouTube channel. So remember to seek all those out via the magic of Google, if nothing else, and like them, subscribe to them and all that sort of thing. If you enjoy all this output, both uh, recorded and written, you can support us via our Patreon, uh, which is patreon.com slash We operate it along the lines of a simple donation box. So if you feel that uh, all the hours that we put in and put your way are worth anything, you could donate a dollar a month or more if you like. And that helps us uh, keep on going, doing what we do. For instance, if we average just one dollar, Per, or even less probably per podcast download, we could afford to make Kana Rince a full-time professional concern, uh, which would mean far more content and even stronger, better researched output, less uh, rushed research and all that sort of thing. So bear that in mind. Uh, however, if you do prefer to get something in return for your hard-earned money, check out our shop online, shop.spreadshirt.co.uk slash where you can buy uh, t-shirts and bags with our logos on both Kana and the sound of play which is our other video games podcast it's all about our love of video games music where we have guests sometimes guest composers guests from the community uh, and from the team we play normally nine tracks sometimes more on each podcast but we also talk in between so if you like us uh, whittling on whittling that's not correct is it waffling on about video games uh, you can hear more of that uh, in a slightly uh, more sort of looser and freer environment on sound of play and as I always say, if absolutely nothing else, please do subscribe to both of our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, or wherever you get them. But also, if you can rate them, you know, like a five-star review or something like that, or uh, even a written review, that would be awesome. Much appreciated. So joining me, Leon Cox, in issue 239 are Joshua Garrity. Hello there. Ryan Heyman. Hi. And returning Zelda guest, not just Zelda, but she's been with us on this run, Leah Haydu. Hello. Hello, hello. Okay, uh, so the Minish Cap, um, it's been released three times, we'll talk about that, but uh, it started on the Game Boy Advance in 2004, actually... In America, you had to wait until January 2005. Yeah, we got it first. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know why that happened, but but, but it did. Uh, so, Leah, uh, did you play this on GBA first time around, or have you uh, have you come by this more recently? Uh, very recently, in fact. Uh, so I, 
I had a Game Boy Advance, and I, I was thinking about this as I as I started my uh, my playthrough here. I had a Game Boy Advance, but if you asked me to tell you five games that I owned for it, I don't think I could do it. I just don't think I was hmm. really playing much on uh, portable systems when I had my Game hmm. Boy Advance. It just wasn't something at the time that I uh, did a whole lot of uh, did a whole lot of playing on. I do remember having the um, the Game Boy or not Game Boy, the uh, GameCube attachment. Yes. Um, and I remember playing a few things on that, but I never actually played uh, Minish Cap. I didn't, in fact, get around to playing it until um, it's, I guess, what, been, been about a week since I found oh, out that right. I uh, was going to be on the show. So, um, yeah, I, um, I actually just played it over this past week. Um, it was something that I had already downloaded and had been meaning to play and meaning to play, and I just never kind of got around to it. Uh, it's just been sitting on my Wii U, and yeah. um, I, uh, I got motivated. So uh, I, I had a holiday weekend this past weekend, so I spent a pretty good chunk of that starting and digging into uh, Minish Cap and nice. uh, finished it up this week. Oh, you mainlined it. Very good. Fresh I memories did, and all did. that. Excellent. <laughs> yes, very fresh. How about you, Josh? Yeah, um, so I've only just played it quite recently, um, like Leah. Um, before playing this um, and before the Zelda series was scheduled, all I really knew about the Minish Cap, much like Four Swords, is kind of the basic premise that at some point Link shrinks down to the size of a little... Uh, ant and does puzzles and stuff at that size um but i had little to no idea what kind of critical reaction this game got uh how the fans felt about it any of that kind of stuff um and so and given that um out of all the games we covered i i felt like i had heard the least about um, the Minish Cap just generally on, on social media. I, I assumed that it was just going to be like one of those middle-of-the-road entries in the series because usually when people talk about something a good five years or ten years after its launch, it's because it's either really, really great or it's so bad that it's worthy of uh, remembrance. Um, whereas, yeah, just no one really... I, I couldn't really see anyone talking about this, so I thought, okay, so this is just going to be a game I'm going to have to get through and maybe I'm not going to have much to say on the podcast. But actually, this ended up being a big surprise, a big, big surprise for me, and uh, right. I'll get into that on the, the, body, uh, the main body of the show. Okay, interesting. And Ryan, yourself? Yeah, I'm pretty much in the same boat as uh, as Josh there. That I was a bit worried that I hadn't heard anything, but um, yeah, as it turned out, everything was everything was just fine. So um, yeah, I only came to this fairly recently, probably starting it within the last month or so, and then just uh, uh, finishing it up um, within the last week. And yeah, I was. Uh, uh, it's kind of it's a very quick game it's it's very easy to get through there's not a lot of like real choke points at which i found myself getting stuck and so it was just a nice pleasant journey throughout the entire experience hmm yeah i did buy this when it came out in fact i have a feeling uh i don't i don't quite remember exactly but yes i remember buying it on the gba when it was very new or or, or if not brand new then very pretty new um but I think I did, you know, what I often do and still do to this day, which is uh, exciting new well-reviewed game in a series I like comes out. And even though I haven't finished all the previous installments in the series, I just want to own it 
say I've got it and know that it's there for a rainy day. Uh, but I never got round to actually playing that cartridge version. Um, at some point I sold it. I don't know when. Um, I would have liked to have play it, played it on the 3DS, but that was only for ambassadors. So uh, that didn't happen. So, I, uh, But as soon as it came out on Virtual Console for Wii U, uh, I bought it again. And that's the version I've been playing. Played it over the last, I don't know, few weeks or so. Finished it yesterday. Um, so yes, I have some recollection of playing it at the time, but I really didn't play beyond, I don't think, the first dungeon. Possibly not even to the end of the first dungeon. So yeah, it's also been a recent thing for me. Um, so this one is another one in the series uh, that is officially by Capcom. It has Capcom's logo, um, but the uh, the director of it, Hidemaro Fujibayashi, is, as we've previously discussed, he was uh, also involved uh, heavily on the Oracle games and Four Swords. Um, and since then, he's gone on to handle uh, Phantom Hourglass, Skyward Sword and the forthcoming Breath of the Wild under Nintendo's banner. Um, which is sort of interesting in itself. The producer is Keiji Inafune, who people will know uh, probably best from Mega Man, but he's also uh, has a lot to do with Onimusha and Dead Rising. Uh, and uh, the key artist again was uh, was uh, Haruki Suetsugu, known as Sensei, uh, whose name you will find on the credits to uh, vintage Capcom stuff like Sidearms, Hyperdyne, as well as uh, Street Fighter 2, but also uh, some of the Mega Man X games, 4, 5 and 6, and uh, the rather cute Wii exclusive, still a Wii exclusive, Zakawiki, Quest for Barbaros's Treasure. Um, which is a, a game that we should definitely think about covering someday. As I say, uh, this was released in both Japan and Europe in November 2004. Uh, USA was January 2005 and Australia was April. The uh, 3DS eShop Ambassador Program was December 2011. Uh, not to be confused with Virtual Console, its only Virtual Console release so far has been on the Wii U. And that happened in April to June 2014, depending on where you were at. Uh, so the average review score, according to Game Rankings, where it simply gives a mean average of every uh, published review that they've uh, gathered together, this was from 67 reviews, average 90.36%. And uh, sales-wise, we don't know about the Wii U eShop, um, of course, but according to our one and only resource, VG Charts, uh, the cartridge version sold a grand total of 1.42 million copies, which is uh, which is reasonably healthy. The the lion's share of those was in the USA, with almost 0.9 million sold there, whereas uh, it looks like it only sold about 220,000 in Europe and Japan, which might explain why we haven't had a huge amount of. Um, feedback. I mean, we've got some, and it's great and interesting. Uh, but this isn't a game that, you know, for instance, with compared to other games in the series, uh, the really famous ones, people haven't been crawling over themselves trying to, uh, you know, to tell us their opinions about it. Uh, we'll give a little spoiler warning, um, but I don't really think it's necessary. Um, the uh, the plot follows a similar outline to uh, both. Zeldas that came before and Zeldas that came after it. Uh, the bad guy is uh, Varty, who returns from the Four Swords games, because this is, in fact, uh, a continuation of the Four Swords kind of saga. 
Uh, it has the four sword in it and it has uh, the ability ultimately. See, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I was thinking, well, surely the main uh, sort of gimmick or, or puzzle opportunity for uh, for Minish Cap will be Link becoming a little fella and being all little amongst the leaves and, and the drops of rain and all that sort of thing. And that happens and that's cute and that's fun, I think. Uh, but actually there's a whole um, turning Link into four links thing that we saw, we talked about in the Four Swords Adventures uh, games and a lot of the puzzles are solved that way um, and that's perhaps some, something that's um, outside of the Four Swords game uh, games is unique to the series um, so before you guys chip in uh, officially according to the Hyrule Historia timeline at the time of release the Minish Cap was the earliest game in the entire Legend of Zelda series uh, yeah set um, in the force, the so-called Force era, um, but obviously since then, Skyward Sword came out seven years after this and was set even earlier after the creation of the land and sky. Um, yeah, so this Midish Cat was set just before the the ac- what happened, the action that happened in the Four Swords, and then after that came Ocarina of Time. I hope that's clear for everybody. Uh, it's another Zelda game. That's what you really need to know. Um, so yeah, how going into this, you 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 sort of all mentioned kind of that perhaps you. It sounds like none of you were kind of super uh, up on what Minish Cat was going to be all about. But um, yeah, just let's hear about your first impressions about the scenario, the setting, and the setup, Leah. So I I knew a little bit about what Minish Cap was, um, but it was mostly uh, the the gimmick with, or I guess if you want to call it that, of Link becoming uh, smaller in order to solve puzzles and to to traverse the world and all of that. I didn't really realize that it uh, did follow along with the Four Swords Mm. games. Uh, And now I have not played Four Swords, um, so I I didn't have that connection really anyway. Uh, But I did, it, it did surprise me a little bit how much of the puzzle solving did revolve mm. around being able to hit switches and push different blocks and uh, traverse uh, around with three kind of little ghost links next yeah. to you. And if any of them get hit by anything, then they all disappear. And that's really frustrating occasionally, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it, it, it is, it is implemented in some pretty cool ways. Um, and it's in uh, some interesting boss fights as well. Um, so, so I didn't really know that much about that. I did know uh, kind of about the, um, the the minish cap itself uh being uh an actual character uh which i know we're going to talk about um Mm. but that that, that's kind of neat too uh it it follows i I mean it to an extent it's kind of what you were saying about it it is another zelda game you have your sidekick in this case it's a hat but you have your sidekick you have two different kind of states of being you know you've got the the minish world and you've got the uh, the regular world just like you've got you know dark hyrule and light hyrule just like you've got link as a wolf and link as a person you just like you've got um you know link in one season and link in the other season it's, it's all over the place and this is another one of those and it, it handles it very well i thought um i like that this is uh, kind of a more, not exactly light-hearted setting, mm. but that it has that kind of cartoony look to it, and that it it um, it's much brighter than uh, some of the other games before it. And I know that's not really the the it's not really the game's fault when you're looking at things like the uh, the 
games that were on the Game Boy proper because you can't really do colors, obviously, on mm-hmm. that. So, um, but uh, I, I really liked the way that it looked. That drew me in pretty much right away. Um, and other than that, uh, there's not a whole lot of standouts, I think, in the actual setting itself. Um, it was very reminiscent to me visually of, and I'm sure this was by design, but uh, a link to the past. Yeah. Ryan, how about you? Uh, I've got some kind of bugbears about the setting and setup and everything. Like I really like that they, um, when this was the earliest game in the series chronologically, mm. and I don't know that the chronology is being like real fast and loose and not all that intentional uh, on Nintendo's part, but I, I liked that they kind of like gave an origin story for Link's uniform and the fact that he has that kind of like iconic cap from mm-hmm. game to game and the fact that Nintendo kind of undermined that and gave him the cap in the game that they set earlier than this felt kind of disrespectful to the storytelling in this game in a way. Like I, I know I shouldn't like get too invested <laughs> in the story of the Legend of Zelda because it's like really not anything like magnificent, but it just... Like I like that they that they attempted to like do something that would have kind of like some level of series wide importance, and just the fact that they you know of just a few years later, another team at Nintendo, I don't know if they thought like well you know this is a Capcom game and so we're not counting it or something, but they, they, yeah, they yeah, just yeah. kind of like undid all of that it was a bit disappointing. Um, but I did really like the way that this tied into the Four Swords games um, because one of the things that really bugged me, and I didn't bring it up on the Four Swords shows, but the intro to Four Swords Adventures I thought was terrible, terrible storytelling uh, because mm. it pretty much just, it, it gives some like written backstory like it does in a lot of the Zelda games, like you know Wind Waker and everything where they tell the story of the hero and all of this, but they're um, kind of recapping the previous Four Swords adventures, and they're saying that, um, you know, once upon a time there was a, a great dark wizard named Vati, and uh, Link uh, struck him down with the Four Sword and imprisoned him, and then then the same thing happened again and Link struck him <laughs> down and imprisoned him and now he's back and Link must seek the four sword. And it's like, that's just, it just feels like really sloppy storytelling. Um, it, it felt just like this has already happened twice before. Like you could have at least kind of smudged the details and say like the details have been lost to legend. We don't know how many times this cycle is repeated or something, but like basically just saying outright that the same thing has happened twice uh, made it feel a little kind of inconsequential. And so I like Mm. this as the first chapter in that trilogy, so to speak, because it's very much not the same thing, which, um, wasn't really communicated by the uh, intro to four swords adventures. Like I like that you are using the four sword, but you are like, it it doesn't work in the same way you're powering it up. It it is so much less powerful than it is in the later Zelda games. You know, you are, um, you're building it up from making one copy of you to making two copies of you to finally having all four links in, uh, in place at a time. Yeah. Um, but mm. even so, like they're such like fragile entities, like just running them into a wall is enough to kind of banish them from, from the world. And, uh, something about that just, it gives a greater sense of like, of mythic progression 
and a greater arc to the story that like the four sword is something that had to be built with the magic of these uh, kind of indigenous people, so to speak, rather than just being like the four sword is an artifact. We've used it a couple times to imprison this body dude and it just doesn't work. So he keeps coming back. So yeah, I really liked, yeah. I, I like the setup to this one and the story that they um, baked in with these three particular games. So to add to the confusion, uh, Four Swords Adventures uh, was uh, released in Japan before Minish Cap, mm-hmm. uh, but in America, in North America, this uh, this came seven months after Four Swords Adventures, um, even though it's set before Four Swords Adventures, and in the EU, uh, Minish Cap came like two months before four swords adventures i mean to be honest like i didn't i don't care really about the mm-hmm. backstory for 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 either this or uh or or four swords adventures it's it's more about what what it facilitates um but that said you know i i, I wouldn't obje- have objected if it had been something more um kind of thought through or or uh, intricate or adventurous but um yeah it's more of a means to an end from my point of view Josh, uh, what were your first impressions and, and how do you feel about this world of Link and Zelda and all? Um, the, the first thing that really struck me was the um, as, the aesthetic of the game. Um, when we were talking about Four Swords Adventures, um, Ryan rightly pointed out that there there was some stuff. I, I mean, I thought it looked a bit better if you uh, rendered so just so people know me and ryan had to play uh four swords through uh dolphin emulator mm. um for adventures various, this is not... yeah four sword adventures uh, well, both actually but yeah yeah um and um there, there was some uh interesting uh visual effects that got a bit weird when you um uh, well at least for me got a bit weird when you um uh bumped it up to uh, modern resolutions. But um, even still, I I agree with Ryan's point that the 3D effects kind of clashed with the 2D effects. Whereas with this, um, this felt like like the realisation of that aesthetic. Like, this was kind of what that game was meant to look like. And I I love the way the world looks when um, Link shrinks. Um, Just the the feel of the the vegetation and the giant nuts and seeds and, and all of that stuff. And... And what I really appreciated also was the commitment to the idea that he was small, that the enemies would change based on how big um, Link was. So mm-hmm. when he's when he's normal size, he'd be fighting you know the regular Zelda uh, enemies, but when he's tiny, he's fighting slugs and beetles and <laughs> insects and stuff like that. It was I I just I love that commitment to to the idea um and and not just kind of reskinning uh moblins and stuff like that to um look slightly different but small um and i i really like um elza uh is it elzo elzo 
Ezlo. I really mm. love El- Ezlo as a uh, companion character. I think they have injected him with a lot of personality in the writing. He can get a bit too talkative at points in the dungeon. Um, that like, There are moments where he tells you, oh, maybe we should go through that door. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I got that. Thanks, mate. Um, and, and that got a bit frustrating at points. But overall, like, I thought he was really charming. And I think the game... D- does a great job of giving him a compelling backstory and really connecting him to the conflict that's going on. And I, I think this is something the series um, uh, does um, even better in a, in a game that we're going to cover later on, Twilight Princess. But I was really pleasantly surprised um, by how much um, he figured into the plot of the overall game and how impactful he was. Yeah, I, I just... Um, I, I was immediately impressed by a lot of things this game threw at me straight away. So I really love the look of this game, but I think it's a, it's an odd one because I think there's a there's a slight contrast between my feelings about the actual the game world, which is fairly kind of like bog standard to the point of parody almost. It's it's yet another version of handheld Hyrule that. Uh, it, you know they've mixed things up a little bit, but it but it is it's we've seen we've seen this basic layout and and these concepts before, but the for me the quality of the pixel art the sprite art and the animation is absolutely top notch and um, yeah it's really for me it's really really pleasing on the eye I like you know I like graphics from this era when when done well the resolution of the GBA um, allowed for uh, you know things that. Uh, it's, it's allowed the artist to expand on concepts we'd seen in uh, on on the 16-bit consoles, as as Leah said, like linked to the past. But it also manages to kind of, I think, very neatly and and tastefully blend in elements of the Wind Waker. Uh, the Wind Wakers, um, you'll definitely see lots of the enemies uh, that you'll recognise from from Wind Waker. Um, the way that the uh, moblins have been drawn and things like that. Um, and like the the puffs of smoke and and that sort of thing. There's some really wonderful incidental animations on characters in and around the world, and it also allowed them to continue concepts, things that I really enjoyed about the Four Swords Adventures, although it's uh, lower res than that because that was on the GameCube. Um, so this looks more like traditional pixel art, um, but they've continued with concepts like um, just the clouds, seeing shadows of the clouds rolling over the land and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think this is a really pretty looking game um i want to talk about the sound as well of course so um the audio again sort of brings in elements from previous games uh they they used the you know the extra space and and fidelity and whatever of the, the the gba afforded them to bring in more of the audio samples as they had done on link to the past so you've got some sounds that are probably familiar first from ocarina of time um and that's fine i don't think the his his yelps and shouts become you know too repetitive or annoying from my point of view it's more of a sort of comforting background noise at this point um the ost though i found is a real mixed bag for me so this is by mitsuhiko takano and 
he is probably best known for um, working on maybe Marvel vs. Capcom 2 is his best known work. Now, that might fill you with dread or love, depending on uh, your sensibilities. But if you've ever heard that, let me take you for a ride character select screen. That that was him. Um, he also did a ton of stuff on Mega Man Extreme 2 and Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, Ugon no Kaze. Um, he's a Capcom guy. Uh, Resident Evil Outbreak as well but yeah this is like his his only full Zelda score now obviously he didn't compose every single track here because there are definite um, rearrangements of pieces that you know from uh, Link to the Past and Ocarina of Time and I think some of those sound pretty nice and some of the original pieces I like um, the Minish Forest uh, piece I think is absolutely lovely um, but then there's also some stuff which I think is a bit more forgettable but my main issue with it is is not his fault it's just the technical um, limitations of the GBA sound chip and this is true of virtually every GBA game is that uh, it can sound a little harsh um, it it can sound a little farty and a little tinny and samples can be a bit scratchy um, and I'm not sure that does it too many favours obviously I was playing it partially on the Wii U gamepad which gives a reasonable but slightly more bassy rendition of what you would have heard through a GBA obviously headphones as well uh, amplifies that but also at times I was playing it on a 37 inch TV through speakers um, and while although it looks a bit odd and zoomed in at first you can quite quite quickly become used to playing um, playing at that size. I mean, I play lots of pixel art games at that size and, and I love being able to see all the detail. Um, but it's quite weird having this um, sort of very handheld soundtrack um, blasted out in, in you know through an amplifier and stereo speakers. Uh, but yeah, so a mixed bag for me. How did uh, each of you feel about the, the general audio and the music? Well, I played on, uh, on a TV pretty much exclusively um right. which uh first of all i i i thought it looked re really good mm. actually blown up mm. um i it's it's often kind of eh, kind of iffy if, if for a an, an older game and particularly an older handheld game mm. what you're going to get when you try to blow that up to a full a full screen um but i thought this one ended up looking looking very nice uh but audio wise um i i wasn't I wasn't put off by the soundtrack, but I also didn't have a whole lot of strong feelings for it, period. I, I found it a little bit unremarkable, and I'm not sure whether that's just because it does lean fairly heavily on older, um, more established Zelda themes. And, and it, it, there's nothing wrong with them. I didn't think that it was badly done. I just it was kind of another Zelda score. Uh, and, and maybe that's unfair to the composer, um, but it some of the original music, uh, like you said, the the, the Minish Woods theme uh, in particular, I do remember that uh, being being very nice. Um, but you spend so much time in the overworld and yeah. in places where you are hearing things that you have heard a lot before. Uh, and again, there's there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but it doesn't really stick out. If I were thinking about just in general scores to Zelda games, this wouldn't be one that would pop into my head as going, oh yeah, I remember that one. That was a really standout for either a good or a bad reason. Um, I, yeah, it, it wasn't, wasn't great. Wasn't terrible. I, I suppose was, was my stance on that. Mm. I mean, I, I feel pretty much the same as you guys when the classic tunes were playing. I, I love that because those are the classic tunes yeah. and they're really great and um, and these are really good versions of them but um, the original pieces just don't stick in my mind 
um, at all. Um, even I don't think any of it is bad. Like I think it's all pleasant. All the original stuff. It's just not. This is a series that's you know legendary for its music, and um, it's just not up to par with some of the strongest um, examples in the series. And uh, Ryan, I can't remember. Did you pick any Minish Cap pieces for the uh, for your Zelda Sound of Play special? Yeah, we got the piece from the Minish, Vi- Minish Village. Right, um, right. Okay, yeah, that's that's a cute that's a cute mm-hmm. bit. Uh, but yeah, again, I wouldn't. Uh, the fact that I couldn't remember that you'd featured <laughs> it maybe says something. How did you feel overall? Uh, no strong opinions one way or the other. It, it does its job, but uh, this kind of quickly turned into a podcast game for me. <laughs> Right. Let's have it on in the background. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, so Josh mentioned Ezlo there, who is your constant companion. Uh, you don't have him actually uh, saying, hey, listen, that sort of thing. Um, he does occasionally pop up automatically with uh, with a bit of text. Um, he exists on your head. He's kind of a like a bird-faced hat. Um, but he's actually uh, the um, cursed incarnation of of a sage, which uh, amused me when um, this is a, an unusual Zelda game, I think, in that I can't think of another. But this is one where you can actually do the standard JRPG thing of going to an inn, paying some money and staying overnight. And it fills up your health like in, you know, goodness knows how many other JRPGs, um, but not normally Zelda games. But what is cute is that. Link goes to sleep with his arm around his little hat friend. Mm. And that's really cute until you remember that it's actually an old man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did not know you could do that. So this is news (laughs) to me. (laughs) Oh, God. I probably would have had a lot easier time in a couple of those dungeons if I'd known that. Well, you said you'd have to go all the way back to the inn, though. So, you know, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, I I quite liked Ezlo. uh, And and I got to admit at the end when... You know the, the the backstory goes that the the door to the to the Minish the land of the Minish or whatever is only open every one hundred years or, or some such and uh, and so of course at, at the end of the the adventure the curse is broken spoiler um, and Eslo returns to his uh, his role as uh, sage of the Minish I think I think I'm getting this right uh, and he actually has to say goodbye and they have you know fairly these are again these are you know just text box and i had the text sped up to maximum and i was holding the button down to speed it up in the traditional fashion because i could read quite fast and and all that but um but i was actually slightly touched it was like oh link's made another friend i know it's this link and i called him ratso so he's not even called link but this this little guy has made a friend in this adventure and once again he can never be it's, it's kind of like the sort of uh, the, it's like the interview with the vampire stuff or the or the or the let the right one in stuff, isn't it? It's this you can't, you know, if you're immortal and, and uh, like link is in our heads, because even though it's lots of different links for us, it's kind of I don't know about you guys, but I always think it's kind of the same one in, in some way. And so he can never have real friends because they all die and he gets to carry on his existence of saving Hyrule over and over again. Uh, but I'm probably reading it wrong. But anyway, my point is, I thought, uh, yeah, I quite liked Ezlo, uh, as as Josh said, and he was uh, a, a nice companion, occasionally amusing and not aggravating to me. Maybe that's because he didn't really have a voice. Yeah, that, I wonder if he. I wonder yeah. if I would have felt differently because I liked him too. And yeah. he he was, uh, as as companions go, he was pretty. Uh, he was pretty up there. But I I do I wonder if that would have been different if he had been a voiced character. Hey, if he could, yeah, yeah every, exactly. <laughs> if, he, if he were yelling at you to listen every room, I wonder. Hey, Link. They could have had a yeah little voice sample. 
Uh, voice by yeah. <laughs> really tinny, scratchy GBA voice sample. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ryan, did you like Eslo? Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, uh, it, it feels kind of bad to say that, like, the less that I hear from the characters in this game, the more I tend to like them. Um, yeah. Because, you know, if he had been as talkative as all of you have mentioned so far, then I pro- probably would have grown pretty tired of him. Um, I always just kind of like, he always kind of chimed in when things were pretty obvious anyways. And uh, actually, I could have used a little bit more advice in a couple of situations in which he remained quiet. But uh, yeah, I, I thought it was kind of fun just having this uh, this weird bird creature on my head. But uh, um, sure. he, he didn't factor into the story as much as uh, like Link's companions in uh, Majora's Mask or something like that. And so it um, you know, it just kind of felt I felt kind of neutral towards them. Hmm. Yeah, and and as for, you know, her name's in the title again, of course. Uh, But as for Zelda, I mean, she has virtually no role in this game whatsoever, really. I mean, she gets cursed and turned to stone. Uh, She's a statue for most of the story. She's literally objectified in this one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She she has no meaningful interactions. Um, You know, at the end, you, you know, you... Un- unstone her um and uh and and lead her to safety in traditional fashion but even then like it's just like again i feel because i've played all these elder games especially this year in a row uh i've got this kind of built up um sense of a of a connection of a relationship between link and zelda but actually there will be no reason for that to exist in this game uh because i don't think they've ever met until the start of the game i know sometimes they have an awareness of one another um but this is another of the games we we were saying it's uh one one of the the curious uh, elements of wind waker was that link starts with a, a family and a sister or you know grandmother and a sister um in this game you start with a you have an older relative as well don't you i think um it's been a few weeks since i played now but uh, I don't know whether they say he's your father or your grandfather or your uncle, uncle but again, it's, I think it's the Smith guy. Yeah. yeah, I think he's probably an uncle again. Um, yeah, I don't think he... Does he ever have parents? Is there any game where Link simply has a mum and a dad? I don't think so. No. Um, yeah, so that lends it again, but having that sort of... Um, the fact that he you, know, you, you first meet him in... Uh, in in an environment where he has some sort of um, footing makes it a slightly different gives it a slightly different vibe to say Link's Awakening where he wakes you know wakes up washed washed up on a beach and the whole thing is a dream and and that sort of thing or where he's kind of literally taken out of time to to do this thing Um, I guess it gives it a more bog standard JRPG sort of you know you're the little kid in the village and you have to uh, take up thy sword and overcome great odds to save the world from the curse uh, who in this case is, as we've mentioned, Varty, who I think is quite a cool-looking character um, and makes a change from Ganon, mm-hmm. Aghanim and all that. But again, I can't think of a single defining characteristic other than a video game Zelda JRPG bad guy. Uh, I didn't I didn't get any real... I didn't even get, you know, they were, I, I think they, they got across in say wind waker which we talked about a couple of months ago um quite a strong sense of sort of anger and and um uh vulnerability and stuff about the 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 ganon in that game 
and sort of some some sense of motivation beyond I am the evil guy. Whereas, but I think here we're back to just evil guy. Did I miss something, or is is that is that it? No, I think that's pretty much it. <laughs> Visually, he he reminds me of um, uh, Magus. Yes, from Chrono Trigger. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah. Varty, not inspiring conversation. <laughs> I mean, his his look it's is worth a try, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's just his appearance <laughs> is the most interesting thing about him. He doesn't even really, apart from being involved in um, Ezlo's, um origin story, he's mm, not really mm. a huge impact in the plot overall. It's much more like the story is much more about the formation of the the four sword and kind of like the origin of that, you know, through line, yeah, yeah. Um, but. Yeah, Varty's just there to kind of occasionally pop up, go, ha, 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 I'm the evil one, now you must die. I'll be the end boss later. Yeah, Yeah, he's just, he's probably, I mean, I don't, there's not really a, I can't really think of a worst villain in the Zelda series, but given that he has so little impact, he'd probably be down there for me, because he's just so Mm. boring. (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, let's move on to uh, playing the game, the control and the combat. So for me, this game, um, I think that, you know, they, they, they know what works. At this point, this was already uh, 11 years after Link's Awakening. And through Capcom's work on the Ages games, which, as we discussed, had actually, um, I think... Uh, they were talking about doing. I think we were saying they they were talking about doing a, a Link to the Past remake, but then it evolved into a way more uh, complex and ambitious project where they were going to make three simultaneous games, and it ended up being brought down to two. But as we know, they retained pretty much the exact um, look and feel of certain uh, elements, characteristics, sprites, assets were actually the same as as in Link's Awakening. Now here, the assets are all new. Uh, we're in. Uh, 16-bit style land, full-color sprites. Um, Link is, uh, you know, controlled in similar way. You go into the menu and you can have, uh, we're still on A and B buttons, but now we have shoulder buttons as well, which uh, opens up two new functions. Uh, one is the kinstones, which we'll come on to. Um, I don't think it's ever used for anything else. But the, the other one is uh, you have a roll now. Um, now, this is only in the four cardinal compass directions, but uh, I don't know about you, but I pretty much rolled everywhere, Yeah. Um, as I tend to do in... <laughs> yeah, everyone's saying, yeah. Um, do you think Nintendo knows that everyone rolls everywhere? Oh, they um, have other to, than, yeah. <laughs> other than speedrunners who hop backwards everywhere, because uh, I'm talking Ocarina specifically there, but uh, <laughs> that's the even quicker way to get around. But but rolling just it just like, seems to take the uh, take take the trudge out of trudging. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> even if he does go huh, every time, which I think he probably does. Um, but if you guys were listening to podcasts, you'd have been hearing something else, I guess. Uh, but yeah, again, the combat felt much the same. You know, the swiping of the sword felt swift and crisp, and um, uh, the sort of the the way collisions worked and stuff felt very recognisable from the previous games, even though it may have looked slightly different because of the bulkiness of the the sprites and. So the you know the hitboxes may have been slightly less um, apparent and stuff like that, but overall, uh, I felt that the actual control of Link and and his interactions with the world, even you know including stuff like dashing and jumping with the cape, um, and we'll talk about some of the new items as well. Everything felt just really usable. That um, I felt like there was less menu 
switcherooing in this game, but that was probably more to do with the design of the dungeons than um, than the fact that because obviously there's no more actual function buttons, so so you were still it was still sword on one and and a another item on another. But yeah, I'd I'd, I'd you know again talking about this sort of um, smooth kind of hump free experience. I think controlling Link for me was part of that. Yeah, I um. A, des- a design decision that I thought uh, I wasn't going to like when I, I first noticed it, um, but mm-hmm. I ended up thinking it was actually a really brave and uh, a smart choice in the end was um, not having a dedicated shield button, but making the mm-hmm. shield a um, right, an yeah. item that you have to equip yeah. like every other, um, which meant that I thought a lot more about kind of the items um, Link had uh, equipped when going into um, specific uh, combat situations and thinking about what enemies are there and what items are useful and what items just aren't useful. And I ended up using the shield um, much more tactically than I would in um, other entries in the series because there are... Like the the dart nuts um, specifically were the enemies that I I kind of needed the shield for because oh, yeah. I pretty much mm. you know with those guys it's much more about reacting rather than acting so you've just got to wait for their animation and then go in for the attack and uh, you know thinking about that before I go into an encounter with those guys and making sure the shield is equipped but then also in other environments where hey look the shield's not really useful here because it's just a bunch of slugs you just equip like the um, the boomerang or something like that and just stun everyone so that they're frozen in place and, and just quickly swipe them all and, and stuff like that I, re- I really like that choice of um, kind of limiting the amount of items that you have access to at any given time, but ultimately getting you to think more tactically about that item usage. Yeah, I mean, this isn't a new a new thing for the series. I that most of, well, I, I guess all of the uh, the portable games at this point had used it, but I think this is kind of the refinement of those because I I felt not great about it uh, when when they first started the first time that I I used that particular system but here it felt a lot more natural it felt not as clunky even though you're still going into a menu to equip things it's it's slimmed down a little bit you don't have quite as many and you don't need to switch them quite as often if you don't want to you can still definitely use them tactically but i mean i found that i had more or less there there were items that i barely touched like i don't i don't know that i used the boomerang more than maybe once i didn't even get it i don't think I, I don't think you have to. No. I, I had it, uh, but I didn't use it very much at all. No. I, I, you know, uh, on the other hand, if you have something equipped going into a place, like I found out by accident that you can, if you have the lantern equipped and you run into a mummy, it'll burn up and it's oh. much easier to fight. You <laughs> yeah. know, they, they, yeah, I found that out completely by accident. Yeah. I thought he was going to grab me, but I had my lantern out. So yeah, it was. Um, I felt that it was a lot easier to deal with than the other times that they have had this, basically this same um, setup going on uh, control-wise. Yeah, as you're alluding to, all of the items seem to have uh, kind of secondary and tertiary uses, which were uh, yeah. really cool. Like I like that more functionality was packed onto fewer equipment items rather than just, you know, loading Link's pockets with all sorts of different devices that do different things. I just felt more kind of elegant 
and um, easier to wrap my mind around and also kind of cuts down on the menu traversal as well. Mm. And having certain things that were permanently equipped, like the, uh, the I don't remember whether they're gloves or yeah, bracelets yeah. in this one, but the things that let you move heavy yeah. stuff, you don't have to put those on anymore. <laughs> they're just there. When your sword gets upgraded so that you can break rocks and, and pots and everything, you can just do it. You don't have to equip mm. that. Yeah. That was really nice. <laughs> Much more streamlined. Yeah. So looking yeah. at the, the items in the game, um, you start off with uh, the, the smith sword and you... Um, upgrade that through uh, the story progression to to ultimately the four sword um so the boomerang which you don't even need to get can be upgraded to a magical boomerang the sh the small shield can be upgraded to a mirror shield but only after you've finished the game once i think mm. i read somewhere um you can upgrade the bombs which i didn't do to remote detonation bombs which sounds like fun um the ocarina returns uh, simply as a fast travel uh, device the rock cape the rock's cape uh, now makes you kind of jump up in the air and uh, opens up these um, situations that weren't in the previous handheld games where you can jump on um, sort of metal uh, grates that are, you know, theoretically above the area that you're standing on, opening up some new sort of puzzle options. And there's, of course, the trusty bow. Uh, and it's possible to get light arrows, which is another power-up that I didn't discover or get. Um, as usual, there are four bottles, or we're back to the traditional four bottles. I only got two of those. I didn't need more. Um, if I'd been trying to 100% the game, um, we'll talk about that later. There's also some, um, as well as your usual milk and potions and uh, fairies in bottles, there's uh, there's some other stuff called Picolite, which you could buy from uh, the returning uh, beetle the uh, the the shop guy from the boat in wind waker is is in the village uh, if you hoover up his um uh if you hoover up his carpet with the gust jar which is something we haven't mentioned which is yeah a, a great example of a of a fun new item that allows you to do certain things uh such as hoovering areas um like like beetles carpet but also you can take down pea hats from the sky by uh, by uh, blowing in the direction um but yeah, these picolites are, are, are basically status-altering things or, or things that will protect you from certain things. But again, I never actually used them, I guess, if, if you were trying 100% the game or uh, uh, or speedrun it. Maybe some of these things would be useful or, or, or not. I don't know. Um, but again, I, yeah, I like that all that stuff's in there, even though I have no personal desire or need to 100% games. Um, there's, there's more stuff to find there. Um, we'll hear later that think that some there is some perception that this game is like th this really really short zelda but actually i played it for a good few hours um and there was there was plenty plenty more to do still um yeah and there's the mole mitts as well and there's something that uh mm. we haven't quite seen something like this before where you actually uh there are all these um sort of earth covered uh, doorways uh, and some areas underground that are sort of full up with this very um Reminds me of the of the stuff in uh, in Yoshi's Island where you could kind mm. of break through it, um, but here you can dig through it in in uh, in in four directions and work your way through to treasures and things like that. Uh, and again, that was you know I just I, I just thought along with that and the um, is it the Patchy uh, cane cane of Patchy, um, which flips mm -hmm. things upside down. Um, yeah, and I think that only really has. Like a, it has two or three uses, which all kind of based around the same idea of moving things upside down. But uh, yeah, I thought it was a, a good item set, and um, and used like each one was used at, 
a sensible amount. They 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 perhaps I, I t- it tends. I, I think these games nearly always end up favouring um, one or two items over another. But here I felt like there was a reasonable spread. Uh, you know, other than the optional items. But um, but yeah, also not to the point where I was getting frustrated with jumping in and out of menus, as I say. So yeah, it's good design. I think. I think the um, the gust jar. Uh, needs special mention because yeah. um, I I I was really impressed with how many different uses they got out of it. You mm. you briefly mentioned it, yeah. but um, at first uh, you kind of just use it to vacuum, you know, uh, dust and stuff like that, and then enemies Cold with whips. like shields on their faces that you can rip off and then shoot back at them. And yeah, that that's great. But then later on, it gets used as a way of propelling you across these mm. little, um, you know, makeshift boats that you find uh, when you're tiny across, you know, uh, bodies of water. And that's cool. Yeah. And then, you know, later on, I, I actually used it a lot as a way of just, you know, attacking enemies like picking up pots and and throwing them at the enemies and stuff like that there's another use i can't think of but the, the, the mushrooms oh Will yes yeah with the Use, using them as a platforming a piece mm-hmm. of uh, platforming was excellent you know grabbing the mushrooms from afar mm. which was also really fun they really really get a lot out of this one item i, I don't think they quite um, managed to achieve that versatility with every other item in the game, but this no. one item kind of stood out as really special to me. And just it allowed for cute moments, like when you uh, one of the points where you make you make yourself small and you go up uh, above this uh, this guy. You, you end up doing a, a rather a mundane fetch quest, which is returning books to a library from various uh, mm. various people around the village. But uh, but one of these takes you uh, as a minish. Uh, into the rafters of this guy's shop and uh, you can there's just there's just patches of dust lying around for no particular reason but if you hoover it up one and then speak to one of the minutes she says oh thanks for cleaning up for us <laughs> that was nice <laughs> i thought that the uh, the shrinking down to the minish size um i i really like this as a um it's kind of an alternate to the other world um, type stuff that we've seen in a lot of Zelda games before. So I feel like more than any of the other Zelda games, like this really clearly communicates what the difference is going to be between these two worlds. And like, you can see it from the map. And even as a big link, you can start to plan out your route as a miniature link. Um, you know, like, uh, I really like how much attention to detail they put into the uh, traversal of the environment when you're small. Like you can't hop up on anything that would be even just a little bit elevated, like the um, steps on the doorway of a house and stuff like that. And so things that were not barriers before now are, which is really smart. Um, The only thing that I would really criticize this mechanic for is that it's not really used in the uh, dungeons at all because the dungeons like their theme is that they're already small and so you're shrinking down to go into them and so there's not a lot of like getting big and getting small again 
in the dungeons. Um, it, it's mostly right? just you for the. You definitely shrink down in a couple. Uh, is that true? There's definitely a cut. Cu- yeah, there's definitely mm. a couple of bits where you where you. I mean, it's not it's not extensively used, okay. but there are bits where you have to go small and then go through a little tunnel and make yourself big again on the other side. That kind oh, of yeah, thing. Oh yeah, yeah. So nothing. Okay. I know what you're talking about. Nothing too stretched out, but um, but yeah, and it's that's mostly right. Overworld stuff though, and most some the of the dungeons you're already well. small in. Yeah, right. some of the dungeons you're already small in, so you can't become super minish, which would have been you know, a whole <laughs> other level of minish pickery uh, uh, antics. But um, yeah, I I feel like I again I have mixed feelings about this. Um, looking at uh, the the place where there's the most of this stuff to do. So, for instance, the the minish village itself, the minish forest, obviously. To do the stuff in there, to visit the people in there, you go small and you're in there and you're small and that's that's fine. But when you're in Hyrule Town, uh, you can see that there's a whole and the, the conceit is that the humans and the Minish share this world the whole time and the Minish kind of secretly help them, a bit like the borrowers or the elves and the shoemaker or that that kind of um, you know, classic storybook concept, which is all good. Uh it's something I used to love as a kid. Um but here you can see in Hyrule Town, you can see all the paths. Once once you're once you know what you're looking for, you see all these paths which are laid out for uh, for the Minish, or in your case, Link to go to. Um, so there'll be like a little uh, a path around the edge of a fountain, which you would just think was a decoration, but actually is a place for for a Minish to walk. And when you shrink down, you can see the other Minish people as well. So you can go up. They've got little um, cameo sort of speech bowl type things, so you know where where you can go up and speak to them. And that's really cute. And I love I love the sort of the interaction with it. But I think sometimes the um, the, the, the sort of the way that the puzzles are laid out, like in the individual houses where it is a case of, you know, that staircase is only there for, for a minish link to get somewhere. Um, I thought it was a little mm, bit, yeah. it's kind of heavy handed. I thought maybe there was, um, maybe there was a, an opportunity for, for kind of more, um, sort of abstract lateral puzzles along these lines where you, it would actually take figuring out what would be a path for a minish link rather than this obviously is one and you're going to have to use it. Do you see what I mean? They do some clever stuff like that sometimes, like the uh, quest you were alluding to earlier where you have to retrieve the library books. Like Those books are yeah. put onto the shelf so that you can climb their spines up to a higher shelf. And I think that's pretty yeah, clever. True. Yeah, true. But um, that's cute. Yeah, a lot yeah. of the stuff is... Uh, um, yeah, but, but you know, mostly it just kind of turns the... Uh, just like the cobblestones of the street into a maze, essentially, which is interesting. Yeah, that's I it. like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, when you think about it, if if this is as they are presenting it, a world where these these minish do live, and some of them live in these cities, then to some extent, they probably would have you know built some ladders to get up around places yeah, right. and little doorways to get into places. That's very and true. It maybe maybe not to the extent that they that they put them in the game itself, but uh, there's some justification for that being there. There is actually you're right, and it actually takes away from that whole idea, which is like. Um so other games where you're thinking what so every time they want to go from here to here they have to p- put this platform into place and then perform this special <laughs> jump and then and then turn on a crank and, and so yeah actually kill everyone in the room and so <laughs> da, da. so yes you you do have a point there um and i was i was sort of i remember being um i remember being sort of semi-stumped briefly by one of the minish puzzles and then somebody mentioned oh uh there's an item and it you know it was it, the solution was sold 
fairly blatantly there's an item which allows allows you to move heavy things even when you're small um but up until that point i was thinking well there's literally no way i can ever make that gap because i'm small and that gap i can't i can't do anything about that gap but but then you can um yeah which was which was nice but i think um i'd say overall and we'll talk about the dungeons uh, momentarily i think overall the puzzle difficulty in this game is uh on the low side, um, by and large, but uh, we'll, we'll come to the puzzles. Mm-hmm. I just want to talk a bit more about the overworld, the, the whole, you know, the, the overworld. We, we've often talked before, particularly in the um, in these top-down 2D Zelda games, that actually navigating the overworld itself can be a bit of a puzzle. And I think we possibly found, if I may speak for the rest of you who are on the Oracles one, was that all of us guys here? Mm-hmm. In fact, no, I, um, I wasn't on it. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, but I think there, there were points in the Oracle games where actually even just getting around became a bit uh, a bit more like hard work than I wanted. Um, just actually, even like paths I'd taken before were so sort of convoluted that I couldn't quite remember how to get from point A to point B. And so I like the fact that Minish Cap uh, strips things back a bit in that regard. If you generally, if you look at somewhere on a map and, and you open up fast travel fairly quickly with the ocarina, bird comes down and uh, swoops you up, as in Link to the Past, and, and drops you off. Um, there's only a couple of bits where you have to really go around the houses to get to where you want to be. And also there's, unless again, presumably if you're hundred percent in the game and going for every heart piece and, and every uh, rupee chest, even and whatever else, there's actually very little backtracking in Minish Cap. There's, there's very little uh, returning to areas that you've previously been to at, at the far flung corners of the map. Um, so there's, for instance, quite early on, there's a, there's a village that's um, sort of, is, is it a, well a, not a village but a um a structure that's above marshland and you end up going around on this uh, slightly elevated structure above the marshland uh, you can only run through the swamps but you can walk over them and although you see bits of these areas later on when you fuse kinstones and you see chests appearing if you don't want to go back you don't ever have to really um and again maybe this brings context into it because playing this to a deadline as we were especially Leah who only started it uh, last week maybe 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 sort of having not having to go go back backtrack and and find your way around is is merciful but maybe if this was like if this if this was the one game you'd bought this six months and you wanted it to last you maybe you would have been able to you know more inclined to take advantage of the uh, of the extra bits and bobs I don't know what do you guys think I uh I I did some of the extra things that you could do i didn't do everything just mm. because of time pressures mostly yeah. um but i i did a fair amount of running background and even when you do have to backtrack it's not so bad mm. um because the areas are relatively small mm-hmm. uh and, and they're not tiny to the point where it feels that there's nothing to do but a lot of that excess space has been kind of cut out of them which i didn't think was a bad thing i i think that in some of the more open zeldas um, it can feel, and we, we've spoke about this um, in some of the other earlier shows, but it can kind of feel like like there are open spaces for the sake of being open spaces, just to give you a place to kind of go mm-hmm. and look at the pretty scenery, which is fine as far as it goes. But in, in a situation like this, I, I don't think it would have felt very... It wouldn't have felt quite right to, to just have a big open Hyrule field 
with nothing really in it that you just had to traverse just because. Yeah. So I and the uh, the fast travel points did help too. Uh, they're they're located pretty well, I think. Uh, so when I was doing my backtracking, I made pretty heavy use of those because once you get the ocarina, you can go pretty much wherever you need to go, uh, and not have to travel very far to get anywhere in between. So that was that was helpful mm-hmm. too. It felt like a very efficiently designed game. Like almost every screen in the overworld had some sort of a puzzle on it, and I really like that they uh, that they used kind of a smaller map overall because it meant that when I got a new item, like I didn't really mind going back throughout the world and seeing what I could do with it. Whereas if this was the size of Twilight Princess or something, then I would just say like, well, if I don't immediately remember it, then it's probably not important and I'm just going to skip it because there's no way I'm going to, you know, hike through the entire thing to see if there's a place where I can stick this weird item. Um, So Mm. yeah, I I really, I I think that it's kind of just the perfect scale for me. Yeah. I, I, I very much agree. I think for me, it, um, it sacrifices um, world building for game design. So in a lot of ways, actually, um, Minish Cap, um, its approach to the overworld and then the dungeons reminded me a lot of um, Skyward Sword, where the bits of the world that you explore are almost a discrete little dungeon in of themselves before you get to the main dungeon. Um, And from uh, from a game design perspective i i found that immensely pleasant i think um a lot of the you know the puzzles and just the scenarios that they create in the over, uh, in the overworld on the run up to the to to the main events as they were um were really well put together and i think they do a great job of creating shortcuts where you get to a certain point in the map and then you can just roll over this boulder into a small t- hole and then you can skip that whole bit um when you go back again um i love that stuff but having said that if someone were to say does this world have the you know the personality of something like a link to the past i i wouldn't be able to say that um and i i get some of the criticism um of minish cap where people are saying you know it just it feels very um it, not soulless. I think it does have a personality, but it do, it doesn't have that feeling of exploring that you know that cave in the corner and not knowing what's behind there. I know exactly where I'm going in Minish Cap. This is a very you know guided experience, and um, there, there's not that sense of discovery and adventure that you get from um from a link to the past but having said that i think what is here is so fun that um yeah it it really depends on 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 what you're looking for from a zelda game i think if you're here for you know that sense of discovery then maybe minish cap's approach to the overworld is less than satisfying but if if you really just care about that dungeon design i think the increased focus on those kind of scenarios even in the overworld will be a a pleasant surprise for you yeah beautifully put um and yeah and and that that design philosophy does seem to extend to the dungeons uh, there are a relatively small number six which i think apart from majora's mask may be the lowest in in any zelda game couldn't say off the top of my head but it's certainly much lower than uh, some of the games that come soon after it uh however what i would say about them is that uh as with the game on the whole, that I found each 
puzzle dungeon, puzzle and combat dungeon, I suppose. Uh, like easy to enjoy, as we've as yeah. we've been saying about the rest of the game. Like maybe maybe there weren't so many bits where I thought, oh my god, that puzzle is complete genius, or I've never seen anything like that before. Um, as maybe in some of the first party Nintendo EAD ones um but i think this showed sort of uh some not that the oracle dungeons were exactly you know i didn't think they were like poorly designed or anything but they felt a little a little less tight than some of the nintendo stuff whereas here these felt to me these felt tighter um each one is very distinct from one another which i think is uh, is a is a strong trait to have visually as well um as as in terms of what they ask you to do in each of them and yeah i really hardly ever got stuck uh in minish cat i don't remember looking at a walkthrough for a dungeon puzzle i don't think oh i tell a lie there was one in the very last one dark hyrule castle where there is a bombable wall with no clue that as far as, far as i could see mm. that was really there and when i read it i was like there's not even it's not even one of those where there's a subtle visual clue i think maybe it's one where you might have noticed from another room that you were mm. going to be coming this way but i i, I think i know exactly what yeah. you're talking about yeah there's nothing there i'm ne- i'm never keen on those uh, they they rely on you looking at something you know maybe 20 minutes half an hour ago and then remembering its connection to that room and and may i I think some people listening would say well that's a good puzzle and that's you know and that's why it's hard to solve and um so maybe there is something to be said that because these generally i'd say these dungeons are sort of straightforward and, and relatively easy going they may be maybe the level of reward and satisfaction isn't quite there as much as it is in some of the tougher ones. But that said, in terms of a pleasant playing experience, um, that I definitely got that out of, out of these six uh, neat economic dungeons. I was really impressed by the dungeons in this game. Like I thought that uh, a lot of them did things very, very differently than previous Zelda dungeons and even future Zelda dungeons. Uh, like there was an... I'm not going to remember the specifics. I apologize for that. But there was at least one dungeon where um, quite a bit of the puzzle solving took place. Uh, the uh, the one up in the clouds, right? A lot of the actual Palace puzzle solving Wings. took place outside. And once yeah. you got into the dungeon, it became more streamlined and, uh, you know, still not easy at that point. But, um, you know, you got to... It was more kind of like action-oriented when you got inside and more puzzle-oriented on the outside. And... Um, and there was at least one dungeon where the majority of the dungeon was behind the boss door. Like you got the boss key almost the first yeah, thing when yeah. you went into the dungeon, um, which mm. is which is fresh and new. And I also like that a couple of the dungeons have um, almost like narrative arcs to them. Like I, I just seem to remember the one where you are unfreezing the boss as you go, and you do that by like opening these giant doors that let you yeah. know floods of sunlight in. Um, like that, that felt very, uh, it it set up this strong central area that served as kind of like a progress meter of where you've been, where you've yet to go. And, um, and there was a lot of just really strong design to these, a lot of good, like central areas that connected a lot of other places that were visually distinctive that gave you, even though you had a map, uh, I mean, if you bothered to pick it up, um, it gave you a really strong kind of like mental image of the dungeon, which is, uh, you know, oftentimes, like, I like 
the Zelda dungeons, but honestly, like Nintendo, I think gets a little carried away sometimes. Um, like sometimes they <laughs> just, it feels a bit excessive, the lengths that they go to. Um, and I think that's easy to do if you're kind of sitting behind a computer screen and, and plugging away at adding puzzles to a dungeon and, and, you know, you're, you're looking at it for a month at a time and you of course understand it, but, um, you know, it, it can be really easy to just throw more and more and more at it. But I really think that the Minish Cap dungeons were uh, uh, just such a like a perfect length, perfect difficulty. And they all did something that was interesting that I hadn't seen before. They made me go like, oh, that's clever. Like, it's not revolutionary, but it's clever. And yeah. I like that. Again, um, just to reiterate what Ryan was saying, I, ju- I was just absolutely... Um just so impressed with the economy of design with these dungeons um and and just i what i found was the kind of primary focus what seemed to be the primary focus and this is kind of um linked with what uh, ryan ended his point with was there seemed to be an approach to making whatever you do in these dungeons just a little bit weird not like wow that was epic and amazing just like oh that was odd and an an Mm -hmm. odd usage of uh and of an of an ability or an item or what have you and that kind of quirkiness ended up being massively appealing to me just having something slightly huh that's um that's interesting in every single dungeon um uh and it, it at, at times it kind of reminded me of um kind of the the uh the 3D world uh, Mario games 3D land that kind of approach right. to like here's mm. an idea here's an idea for this dungeon and then we're just going to abandon it later on we're not going to repeat this concept again yeah. we're just going to show show it here and then abandon it and the you know other zelda games have done that sort of thing in the past with with items but there is there is um certain games in the series where i feel like they do repeat um certain kind of puzzle archetypes um throughout yeah. the puzzle, throughout the temples whereas here that there, there was a focus on really really trying to do something new with each one yeah i think that having them so distinct and 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 non-repetitive is yeah it's i mean it's something that i would generally prefer as a philosophy from my from you know the way the way i like to play and the you know the amount of different games i like to play and the fact that i like to play things uh for the podcast or have to um, out of my own volition but um i think that that sort of philosophy tallies with me and that's the why that you know i had such a uh a le- you know an unstressful time playing through this game because it always felt like I was getting somewhere um making progress and uh, and maybe it's not that maybe it's not simply as straightforward as well the puzzles in this game are easier than in other Zeldas so so that's why it was you know it was easier to get through maybe it is more that Capcom <coughs> Uh, we're doing, you know, subtle things, signposting, and and uh, and maybe it was the way they communicated the solutions to me, rather than them being, you know, simpler necessarily. Which brings us on. After dungeons, you have to talk about bosses, of course. Mm. And uh, I had some fun again. Like 
sometimes bosses, especially playing games against time limits and, and with the pressure of knowing that you've got a show coming up yeah. and all that sort of thing. And we do always acknowledge this uh, when we record because it does mean that our experience may be slightly uh, different to uh, those of you if, if you decide to uh, if you decide to play along with the show but not to a time limit um, it might give you a slightly different experience but um, the bosses here uh, yeah I'm not saying there was there was never a moment where I got a little bit annoyed because yeah hey video game bosses right that's what they're there for sometimes you take a hit and you don't feel it was fair or you didn't understand what was coming or whatever but but again I thought the bosses here were um, there were some cool ideas they were attractively presented um they were varied again you know so you've got mm -hmm. you know sometimes depending on what item you're using and, and what scenario you're in um you've got some quite distinctly different setups um and again compared to uh some of the really quite um uh, bog standard um bosses we've seen in handheld zeldas before um, thinking about the uh, Georg uh, Fish, whatever he was called in uh, Link's Awakening, um, and some of the Oracle of uh, Ages bosses, I think it was, um, which were very, very, you know, just walk in and slash the head, you know, umpteen times and avoid getting hit by the things bouncing around the room type affairs. Uh, these were all, um, you know, boss puzzles where it was it was clearly from almost from the off in you could see that it was entirely possible to learn a pattern to never get hit and to mm -hmm. kill these things very, very swiftly if you knew the routine. So very much more in line with um, some of Nintendo's, uh, you know, big internal zelda games in that regard like ocarina of time bosses where it's like okay i know how to do this and you can execute if you can execute it well it you, you know you win the fight and that's fine and you never need to die i mean for instance i never i never got more than uh, 13 hearts and two bottles in this game but um apart from one sticky bit on the final boss i didn't have problems here but i did have fun and uh, and mm -hmm. that's important to me yeah i think that of the Zelda games. This one has um, strum some of the some of my favorite bosses. Anyways, like I really really love that first boss. That's just the giant slime that you have to like. Yeah. To, um, I guess like blow blow him up like one of those uh, like clowns that you shoot the uh, water in the mouth of at the fair, and then their nose gets yeah. big and explodes. Um, it, but yeah, and so he gets real top heavy and then falls over, and you can slash away at him. Like that's that's clever. Um, there's a couple that I just, that I can acknowledge are well designed, but I had a real problem with like oh, really? the, uh, the one where you're on the back of manta rays yeah. up in, uh, um, oh, I like that. I, it's really clever and I've really wanted to like it, but just, uh, trying to, uh, keep all of my, uh, clone links alive while I'm being shot at from all different directions. Yeah, I found okay. super frustrating. Yeah. That could be a bit annoying. Um, yeah. and then the. Uh, the one where you had to like circle strafe around it and get behind it and hit the flower on its back. I like, I like the design and I really like what they were going for. I thought that it could have worked really well, but it just, it turned around too quickly and it was so hard to mm. get behind it, at least for me. Like maybe I'm just not the best at controlling link, but I had a real hard time um, getting behind that thing and it would always suck me up and spit me out against the wall. And I just, it just kept giving me a pummeling. Yeah, but it, yeah. Yeah, I, I've I, that that now you now you mention it. I do recall that one being slightly. I I, I was thinking with that one that would be a challenge to do mm -hmm. without taking taking a hit. 
but um but also mm. i found generally apart from maybe that attack that you just mentioned yeah, the, yeah. the attacks that bosses did were were less punitive than in previous games mm. it felt like they just decided to go a bit easier perhaps in the perhaps in the wake of the response to wind waker you know and the fact that that game was <laughs> you know widely considered to be consider you know noticeably easier than previous games in the franchise and yet it was still very warmly greeted i don't know let's say one more thing that kind of bugged me and this is about the final boss battle in a way mm. is that uh the final little run up to him um you're faced with a mini boss challenge so to speak you have to yeah. fight like three dark nuts in a room and yes. those guys are already really hard and the way to fight them is to kind of like wait your turn and then they slash at you and then you can get in there and slash and i mean it's hard mm. when you're fighting more than one of them but the fact that they also put that battle on a time limit uh mm. just like really got under my skin <laughs> i did not like yeah, running out of time i didn't find out how long the time limit was because I, ma- I managed to do it but um but yeah i was it, it certainly it Heightened the tension, put it that yeah, way. But yeah, yeah there, there was a lot of there's there. I, I think you could say that in that last dungeon, there's a certain amount of dark nut padding because there's quite yeah. a lot of dark nut fights in that last section. Which perhaps uh, that was one thing that it did repeat, probably maybe you know three times too many or something. But I've had yeah. worse. I've had worse experiences. I totally. I, agree. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. Um, a a boss concept that. Unless, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, I believe the game uh, repeats this twice um, that I really, really enjoyed um, was when the game combined the uh, regular Link and Minish Cap Link uh, modes in a boss battle situation. And you had to stun the um, bosses either uh, hand or... Uh, uh, yeah, it's the hands for both bosses, actually, now that I think about it. Um, uh, Different stun limbs, that. anyway, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. Stun their limbs and then, you know, find a minish uh, portal and then shrink down and then go inside the interior of the boss mm. and then start taking out, you know, the mechanisms within that creature or robot or what have you. Um, I really enjoyed that because it it was it felt fresh for the series. I hadn't seen something like that before implemented in a boss fight in the Zelda series. And um yeah, just that kind of playing with perspective and and getting inside the creature and seeing the inner workings was really just it was fun it was a cool concept and totally and and Mm. the artists kind of really got to stretch their muscles of you know imagining oh what what would the interior of this creature look like what what little you know mini robots would be inside here and and how would it start to defend itself when it's you know started to realize (laughs) what link was doing by making you know you know uh copies of the main mechanism that didn't actually do anything uh, in order to try and trick link into attacking those first it's yeah i i thought it was um yeah all of those those two encounters where that used that system i thought were really impressive it's funny because they're both executed really simply in in a lot of ways it is just a case of you know stun shrink walk up the ladder go in hit something but yeah i totally got all the same feelings as you there's that there's that wonderful sort of sense of haha i may be small but i'm you know that sort of ant-man kind of thing going on and um 
and it actually made me think, uh, even though obviously I know that this was entirely specific to this game and these two bosses, it made me think, oh, imagine going into all the Zelda bosses and uh, climbing up inside all of them and seeing what's inside all. all. But it, it kind of only works because they're sort of robot-y type monsters. You, could, you couldn't really climb inside a... Uh, a giant dodong. I mean, I'm sure know, there's fan art to that extent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that's probably true. Leah, did you have fun with the bosses this time? For the most part, I did. Yeah, um, I I agree that that the giant manta ray thing uh, was a little bit of a trial. Um, I I found that while in theory, uh, much much like Ryan was saying, I, in theory, when there were uh, boss fights where you needed to use multiple copies of Link. The design was really cool, and I appreciated what they were trying to do, but in practice I didn't particularly like that mechanic, and they used that in the final boss as well. Particularly, um, I had some issues with it when you have to kind of reflect all four of the projectiles at the same time. Yeah, it's a bit pernickety, yeah. I thought. And I was low but, on yeah. health by that point anyway, uh, because I didn't really prepare properly, so you know, you have several uh, iterations of the boss before that that you have to go through before you get to this and then to be low on health and not really able to pull that uh, mm. that timing off consistently was kind of messing with me a bit um, I, I did like how it was designed uh, and and I thought that it was uh, it was well done and particularly considering that some of the uh, the bosses in a few of the games leading up to this were not bad necessarily but not great in a lot of cases uh, I this was a, quite an improvement I felt yeah, and they've also uh, here partly as I guess a concession to handheld gaming, and partly as a just a, another progression through the series, and perhaps perhaps something towards uh, games generally being slightly more uh, player friendly or easier, depending on how you want to look at it. There's also two checkpoint markers in each uh, dungeon now, teleporters, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously make getting back to where you were a doddle. Uh, it, which uh, certainly in the final dungeon, when I got the second one, uh, I simply um, walked outside, teleported to the witch's hut or the nearest um, nearest fast travel location to Syrup's hut, and uh, got another two, you know, filled up my health and got another two bottles of red potion, um, and went back. So that that saw me right for the for the rest of the the dungeon and the fights. So and there was you know there's no penalty for doing that whatsoever. So. Um, other than the loss of rupees, of course, if you consider that a penalty. But by that point, I had the giant wallet and I had 999 rupees. So, yeah, yeah. Hark at me. Of course, something else I could have done to prepare was uh, get even more of the heart pieces. Now, uh, once again, uh, we're going to hear from uh, our regular correspondent, Andrew Brown, uh, who is somebody who doesn't feel uh, satisfied, I think, in games generally, but certainly in these Zelda games, unless he's uh, collected everything. And, and as we'll hear again, that led for him to uh, for certain elements of this game to be uh, less than enjoyable. Now, for me, as somebody, I was happy to come away with 13 life hearts in total, I think it was, um, and maybe... 40% of the figurines uh, I was not that fussed um, but obviously I could have spent more time getting more heart pieces um, the the kinstone fusing uh, leads to a lot of collectibles many many times I think it's just rupees sometimes it's 
uh, possibly other kinstones, uh, sometimes maybe heart pieces. I, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but the kinstone fusion, I again, it's another element that I have slightly mixed feelings about because, well, I'll be honest, between my first session of playing this and my second or third, I completely forgot about this entire mechanic. So uh, beca because it's completely... It's unique to the to the series, isn't it? There's no other game where you do this thing of talking to people and talking to them in, in a special way by using a, a, a different button and then locking items and then something in the world happening. But once I remembered, I sort of... I'd already collected up a, a whole heap of kinstones. And I was going around, going up to everyone, seeing if they had a little uh, dreamy bubble appear by their head. And enjoying just that the simple act of going up to people and saying oh let's fuse kinstones it sounds like sounds euphemistic for something but we'll we'll have fun nonetheless and then a thing would appear in the world but i think um while there were some specific examples where you needed to do this to uh, you know gain access to temples or or further in the game or whatever um there was a lot of this which seemed fairly um kind of not that well rewarded uh so it would be you know a a chest appears somewhere on the map and it's got some rupees in something like that uh which i can understand if you were trying to 100 percent get every chest get every uh piece might be might be frustrating um so yeah uh, and i also I, I don't know it just felt like a bit of a i like the concept of the this 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 particular version of hyrule where fusing kinstones is a thing that you do to show your friendship and make you know the idea is that it makes the world a better place because you're cooperating in some way and, and whatever else. But um, but then the idea that you actually get to see on the map where these things appeared, that doesn't seem to really sort of make any sort of sense with what we know about the way The Legend of Zelda works and Link. And yeah, so I don't know, mixed feelings. Kinstones? I had high hopes for Kinstones because... Oh, you're, did you? Well, okay. because you're fusing them, and I know a thing or two yes. about fusion. Um, Josh knows. Okay. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I didn't really care for the mechanic of kinstones. I it was it was fine that it was there because it was more or less an extra thing. And when you do need hmm. to actually do it to progress the story, they signpost it pretty well by giving you giant gold kinstones. Like, hey, this is going to be important. Yep. You should probably hang on to this one. And I mean, I did a fair amount of, of the kinstone fusion just by, you know, seeing who wanted to do it. And if I had it, then, you know, why not? I didn't really seek yeah, it out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, mm. But I, I thought that there was kind of a lot of it to do and it was a little bit tedious. I thought plenty to miss. Yeah. Uh, and, and also I, I tended to only pick up the dungeon, uh, the, the chests that had appeared. If I ever went back past them, yeah. I certainly wasn't, going around the map going oh well that that now that's in that field um there there were some um, legendary monsters which appeared which was something we'd seen in a previous game i can't remember which one might have been the oracles i'm not sure uh so golden versions of monsters that appear uh and you know that's fun but then you kill them and you get like some hundred rupees or something and generally by that stage you've got hundreds of rupees anyway so again it's more about ticking it off your list yeah than it is about actually achieving anything necessarily worthwhile. Yeah, I, di I did a lot of fusing and not much actually picking up the rewards yeah, of the yeah. fusions. Yeah. I just, 
I did it because of some OCD or just compulsion yeah. in my mind yeah. of just like I have to do it. They've got a floating thing above their head, so I have to do it. And then just never bothered to actually collect the rewards. And it, it's I think it's a weird mechanic. Um I I I don't think I like it, despite the fact that I engaged with it so uh, enthusiastically. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ryan, Kinstones, shall we fuse? Yeah, I actually <laughs> like the system. Um, and I think the fact that it was so kind of inconsequential, I mean, occasionally it would reward you with some pretty nice stuff. I liked that it wasn't like a one-to-one, like you need to find this kinstone to appease this person. Like everybody's kinstone had different shapes, but there are only like, you know, uh, 12 or 15 shapes to choose from in the first place. And so Mm. you could just kind of stock up on all that you saw. And if somebody, um, if you go past somebody that you're able to fuse with, then like, you know, might as well. And then something might open up and it's kind of just, it just felt nice. (laughs) It's a little, uh, you know, a little squirt of those reward um, feelings every once in a while. Yeah, sure. And yeah, I have to say that I I don't think that maybe once was there a time when I had the conversation with a person about fusing kinstones and I didn't have the, yeah. the piece that they needed because, you know, I hacked down trees and grass uh, obsessively in all these games. So <laughs> just uh, and you pick them up various other yeah bits and bobs. So so I didn't run out of kinstones properly. So that possibly helped. I know some people have said that uh, the lack of kinstones may have been an issue. Um, Josh, I didn't have problems with the uh, speed of animation for the kinstone fusion, but I did have a problem with the speed of animation and the whole uh, speech bubble concept for figurine collecting. I don't know if anyone else engaged with this. Uh, so this, uh, you know, this is something you see in games from time to time, um, collecting uh, sort of th- theoretical virtual mannequins of, of characters in the game. Here it's done in a it's in the style of a gachapon machine, only you go to a specific tree hut house type place uh, and you hand over these shells, which you find uh, every so often around the world. But you can also buy them. Um, you have a, a, a three or four text box, conver- text box conversation with the man and then you have to actually physically walk two centimetres or whatever to the right and then grab and pull a lever, which takes a second. And then you have to sit through the gachapon animation of the little multicoloured egg popping out and breaking open. And then you get to see if you got a new figure that you didn't have before. Um, you can increase your chances of getting a figurine that you don't have by giving him more shells so you can go up to 100% if you've got enough shells but obviously every time you get a new figurine the chance of you getting a new one drops Um, and there are quite a few to collect I don't have the number in front of me Um, maybe 130 or something I'm not entirely sure maybe it's not that many but it's a lot it's enough Um, and so I got to the point where I'd, as I say, I'd collected about, I reckon, maybe 40, 45% of them by the end of the game. And I was quite bored of doing the whole, have the conversation, walk up to the gachapon machine, mm. pull the lever, wait for the thing to happen. Uh, and then, so I ran out of shells and it was yesterday and we were doing the show today. So I just stopped. But as we'll hear, as I say, from our correspondent, Andrew, if you're trying to 100% the game, and so that means getting all the set of figurines for the sake of getting it, but also because I think you get a heart piece at the end, uh, you've got to do this. So that would mean a lot of uh, a lot of collecting of shells and then 
and then going through this until you had every single last one. Now, it's it, obviously it's completely up to people whether they want to do this stuff or not. And I'm going to guess, haven't heard from you guys yet, that none of you did it. <laughs> but uh, but it's there. And for some people, if it's there, it has to be done. So did anyone get maybe somebody just got one and then thought, right, that's, that's it. I'm done with that. That's actually pretty close to what happened with me. I got maybe half a dozen of them. Yeah. And then I kind of went, this right. is taking forever. I don't think I really want to do this. I also thought maybe yeah. these seashells are supposed to be used for something else. So by the end of the game, I had oh, a ton of right. shells no, not, just no. from, yeah, mostly from fusing stones uh. and finding them in, you know, large quantities in these in these treasure chests that I was passing along. And, and, and just by the end of the game, I have all of these seashells and I still haven't done anything with them. So I just let it go. <laughs> right. Well, you can still do it. You can do right, what I did, and after you finish the emboss, you can just, you, yeah, you can do it if you want. Just go back to uh, go back to the game, fly to Hyrule Town, and uh, and just go in and play that machine over and over again. If you if you do what I was doing, which is always making sure I had a hundred percent chance, which obviously the optimum way to do it is probably not to do that. It's probably I don't know, like some there's probably some great algorithm which says exactly what the oh, optimum sure. amount of shells to pay each time, so that you can not have to just spend the the you know hundreds of hours collecting these shells um i was thinking oh maybe if i just do 80 percent a time then you know that gives me a pretty decent chance of three more than three out of four of getting a new one but then i got two repeats doing that so i thought well i can't be bothered with this so i just started paying the necessary shells to get 100 percent chance which by the time you've got 40 something percent of the things is uh like you're paying that many shells or, or whatever so uh so it becomes quite expensive um for a lot of virtual trinkets that i will never look at again so no right i never even encountered this system in the first place which is probably a good thing <laughs> okay. because um you know I, I do like this kind of thing in like wind waker like i yeah. love collecting those figurines because it was a little bit more of like a yeah. mini game in that case like you know positioning yourself cute. to take the photographs and stuff like i like that but yeah. um yeah i guess anybody who looks at my like amiibo shelves or my lego dimensions collection should probably know that i i shouldn't even get involved uh, okay. in this type of thing <laughs> even virtual ones yeah the the thing is that they are you know i said earlier about how much i like the sprites and the sprite art the, these are they you know these are that but then i can you know because it's like all the characters from the game and all the monsters and various scenes from the game you can just see them so it's like it's just a, it's such a weird concept when you think about it because you could just look at them without looking at this collection each one has a little description says basically what they are and maybe gives you in some cases when it's a monster gives you a little clue about their their behavior or something but by this point you know you really don't need it so this really is something that is going to only play into the, the 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 poor obsessive hands of completists uh not like you josh i don't suspect no um i try i tried this a little bit um but if the animation for the kinstones annoyed me oh, imagine God. how yeah. bad this was i tried it a couple of times i was like no sorry uh, unless this ends right. up being like a huge factor later on which it never does um no. i'm not engaging with this ever again sure okay so well let's hear from andrew on that note uh because i, I think it's important to acknowledge that completion you know players who play to completion uh, and and feel compelled to uh they do exist uh, we are just not them clearly uh, so as always please post your opinions about our upcoming podcast games at com slash forum or you can email us 
to podcast at canerids.com. So Andrew says, as I prepared to sit down and play through The Legends of Zelda The Minish Cap, I was excited because I was sitting down to play through one of my favourite games. Its opening scene is iconic. Our hero wakes up late but is eventually sent off to join the festivities at the carnival, marking a millennial anniversary of a vaguely defined historical event joined by a rambunctious golden-haired princess. The spirit of the carnival is infectious, filled with a bustling crowd of happy carnival goers, a seemingly ordinary bell that is prophesied to ring at a moment at a moment of great fate and even a bridge with a cat on it. After running around the carnival for a while, I sighed for it was time to stop procrastinating. With great effort, I turned off Chrono Trigger and turned on the Minish Cap. Bait and switch. Nice one. <laughs> uh, I have described the Minish Cap in the past as my least favourite in the series. While playing along with the podcast and familiarising myself with more with other titles uh, has shifted that opinion. I still can't recommend it to any but those looking to experience every last Zelda. I'll just get it out of the way up front. The Kinstones are horrid doubling down on the Gasha seeds from the Oracle games to foist more double-unlocking shenanigans upon me. This iteration of Hyrule is positively swarming with nooks, crannies and alcoves to spelunk, but most of them are hidden behind a kinstone fusion, which requires me to find a kinstone, then fuse it with an arbitrarily placed NPC somewhere in the world, which will then open up another area which usually has little to no connection with who you just fused with. Kinstones naturally drop randomly, except, of course, for the ones that don't. Oh, and sometimes your reward for your efforts is another kinstone. Finding new NP finding a new NPC to fuse with and discovering I can't, not because I missed a hidden area or was missing some tool from later in Link's quest, but because the game hadn't deigned for, to grant me one yet, is incredibly frustrating. Except for when that is the case, it's a headache-inducing system and the nadir of all Zelda side quests, says Andrew. There's also the figurine gallery, which requires the player to farm mysterious shells to win figurines in a lottery. Yay, more random number generation. And then, when the world's supply of shells dries up, farm rupees to buy more shells from a shop. Completing the gallery, of course, is the only way to get one of the game's heart pieces. 100% completing the Minish Cap is a patience-testing marathon of the worst sort of video game randomness, and I don't recommend anyone do it more than once in their life. That's one more than I would recommend, Andrew. It's the size-changing mechanic, of course, which defines the core of the Minish Cap and makes it stand out from the rest. Other Zeldas have explored the idea of two alternate visions of a single world, but the Minish Cap plays on this concept by exploring a world that is not separated by time or by philosophy, but by scale alone. What does the world look like from an ant's perspective? What obstacles, such as a puddle, a raindrop, or a house cat, will be taken for granted by a normal-sized link, but become a deadly barrier to a minish-sized one? It's in the town where this concept is really developed, as it is slowly opened up for a regular-sized link, but then must be re-explored with a minish-sized link, revealing that the game's densest and most intricate area is even more dense and intricate than it first appears. The town is the only area where this feels fully fleshed out, however. In most other areas, I simply had to find the correct path of shrinking and unshrinking to find my way through. Outside of town, I rarely felt like I was in a bigger world of Lilliputians existing in a smaller world of giants, but merely looking for the correct path through the labyrinth. It kept me engaged with finding my way through the world, but didn't fulfil the game's conceit of the world is much bigger than you realise to my satisfaction. The shrinking mechanic is sparingly used in the dungeons, if at all, but since they're so well made, I didn't really notice. 
The dungeons where Link spends his entire visit in Minish size are particularly memorable, transforming mundane objects like spinning barrels into dungeon-altering puzzles, and finding that the boss is simply a regular-sized enemy, now made into a deadly opponent due to Link's diminutive nature. Luckily, the bosses do make good use of the shrinking mechanic, and the final battle with Vati requires unorthodox use of Link's skills and equipment to clear. From a purely mechanics perspective, the three-part final boss battle against Vati is the most satisfaction I've had during my replay of the Zelda series. I suppose my enjoyment of the Minish Cap depended on whether I was on the path or wandering in a field. If a game can be imagined as a public park, then the Minish Cap is an impeccably groomed but rather short path winding through it from which I saw the Warren of Caves and Grottoes just off the beaten path. I can admire the view, but if I want to go there, I had to constantly wander the path, looking for lottery machines to draw from, hoping that one of them gives me a winning ticket, but never knowing if that winning ticket will send me into a place I actually want to go. When I was on the path, I enjoyed the Minish Cap. When I was trying to get lost in the fields, I found myself only frustrated, flustered and deflated by constant lotteries. And for me, at least, I play Zelda to explore those fields, not to follow that well-manicured path. For that reason, I cannot recommend the Minish Cap to any but the most thorough Zelda fan. Or, if I may counter Andrew, the least thorough Zelda fan, like me, who doesn't feel the need to be thorough, uh, and therefore is quite happy to go along the path. But I see, I totally take your point, and um, as I say, those people who uh, want to do the 100 percenting and see every nook and cranny, there are, yeah, there are definitely, I would agree, barriers to that being fun in this particular incarnation. Now we have an email from Matt Sharawara, who says, Up until earlier this year, the Minish Cap was one of only two Zelda games that I'd never finished. Upon reaching the final dungeon back in 2014, I'd rather puzzlingly given up my interest in completing the game. Not being able to remember what particular straw it was that had broken the camel's back, I returned to it a few months ago and endeavoured to finish it on a new file the second time around. It didn't take long for me to recognise my reason for having left the game uncompleted the first time. The Minish Cap has one of the most uninspiring overworlds I've experienced in a Zelda title. The locations are varied enough, but its inhabitants, both friendly and not, are usually uninteresting or dull rehashes. There's a princess we're tasked to save that we barely get a chance to know, and a whole mess of reused characters like the Carpenters from Ocarina or Tingle and his same Wind Waker cohorts. While the Zelda series is one that has often employed its pre-established cast of characters to fill the ranks, it usually does so by adding a new dimension or spin on its characters, at the very least in design. Here it's just a case of, oh look, here's Malon and Talon on the same ranch again. Ezlo, a sarcastic talking hat perched on your head, has the highest chance to be something interesting and new, but most of the time I forgot he was there. And a few times I actively sought his help in a tricky section of a dungeon or battle, he offered absolutely nothing of use, usually just uttering that we needed to get out of here or that the enemy sure looked tough. <laughs> Taking the time to try and learn about the new race, the Minish, was usually time wasted, as the Minish characters were often difficult to get to and also offered conversation neither interesting or useful. In fact, the vast majority of the talking in the game seemed a little off, with various characters using ill-fitting vocabulary like awesome or dude that went a long way to breaking the atmosphere. I don't remember any, any dude interjections, but I'll take your word for it, Sharawara, Mr. Sharawara. Uh, the main reason to talk to characters in the game is for the fusion of kinstones, a practice that I found both infuriating, as I never seemed to have the corresponding piece I wanted, despite having triplicate of every other variant available, and pointless, as too many of the rewards were things like a chest of rupees on the other side of the map. 
But on the positive side of things, I found the game to have clever and engaging boss battles. Certainly the most consistent bosses of the handheld Zeldas and arguably some of the best in the series overall. After defeating the Georg pair boss of the Palace of the Winds, I actually reloaded the save and completed it again, finding the battle to be the most enjoyable high point of the game. The final boss and dungeon also provided a fun challenge, which left me walking away from the game on a good note. But too much of the game up to that point had felt middling and occasionally dull. I'm glad I can tick this off the list, but I won't be returning to the Minish Cap again. So interesting contrast in uh, feeling about the, the Georg boss there. We've had uh, two of the panel here saying that uh, it was a bit bit of a chore and somebody else, some, one of our correspondents saying that they, they liked it so much they played it twice. This is the beauty of all these opinions. Uh, finally, from correspondence, we have one from our friend Mike Leddy, Michael Ledwood, who says, The Minish Cap is a dream come true for me, an amalgamation of Capcom and Zelda. What could go wrong? Very little, it seemed, as I played it a short while after release. The visuals, for the most part, brought a vibrant scene, animations peerless, a solid set of mechanics and a punchy soundtrack to back it up, although I'll admit it doesn't stick in my head. I might have had higher than necessary expectations for this game. It does the job, but it doesn't really push it to the level I'd hoped. The most consistent thing I remember about the game was that despite doing so much, there was a sparseness to it all, mostly in its background design, and especially in the look of the miniature villages. But this feeling also creeps in just a little into many other elements of the game. I love a cramped little room brim brimming with minute details in the way Nintendo can, and often does, but that's not really the case here, and the locations just don't seem memorable. There's definitely a combination of the art direction and level design that conflicts with my taste, but I just can't put my finger on it exactly. In this rare case, it's some aspects of the design that just leave a bad taste with me. Still, I found the game hard to put down. At its heart, it's definitely a solid game. The odd power-ups just look so good in action that you salivate at the prospect of pulling something out of the bag that you've not used in a while, if only for the well-crafted animation. The bosses seemed serviceable, nothing too new, but just enough to serve a full fat Zelda experience. For once, this is actually a game in a series that I've beaten twice. It's just a good Zelda game. It's not as special as I'd hoped it to be, but it's far from being a failure. In an ideal world, I'd have loved to see an all-out assault on the Zelda formula in a way I think the Capcom of old just didn't live up to here. But I'm glad to have played it, and I will continue to hold it in high regard. In a series of this stature, that's no bad thing indeed. And that's actually the most positive one we got. I think we we may hear some slightly more positive summations from our, our panel present. But now we have just one three-word review each, starting with Josh. Anthony Asaf says, small, small, small. Andrew Brown says, incredible shrinking link. Christopher Cheung needs more kinstones. And Gein, lovely windpot. So yes, to summarise, something else that makes me happy. The Minish Cap. It does. I like it. Um, it's not a Zelda game for the ages. I don't think it, it has the sort of epochal impact, of course, of, of Link to the Past or Ocarina of Time. Um, but it was it was a fun time. As I say, it was it was very easy to play, very easy to like. Uh, I certainly because I wasn't you know I wasn't bogged down by concerns of heart pieces or kinstones or uh, uh, the other thing, the figurines. Um, I was just there to enjoy some really uh, kind of sleek and interesting dungeon and puzzle design and some really really gorgeous uh pixel art uh from yeah like a, a sort of souped up 16-bit era that really i think 
kind of some some of the nicest looking stuff I think I've I've seen on the the Game Boy Advance. So yeah, a very pleasant Zelda. I think the one it reminded me most of because I ended up playing these these the wrong way round is a link between worlds. And while I know that's uh, more of a more of a, uh, a, a a first party product than this was, uh, and it's not indeed it's not the same director either um we know we know which games uh, he's gone on to make um there's something about it sort of it's uh, ease of use it's breeziness and it's atmosphere that i think um reminded me of uh, of minish cap uh, so yeah if you if you more recently i know a lot of people played a link between worlds probably many more people than played diminish cap if you have a if you have a uh, a gba left or a wii u you could do a, a heck of a lot worse than Add the Minish Cap to your list of games uh, that you've completed and enjoyed uh, in the Zelda series, especially. But as we've heard, probably just just don't worry about getting all the heart pieces or all the figurines and maybe you'll have a better time. Ryan Heyman. I I was really impressed by Minish Cap and I didn't know what to think going into it. Like I was really pleasantly surprised by just about every turn and I can tell from fairly early on that like, you know, this is one that really gels with me, uh, which is not something that I can say about every Zelda game. Um, you know, maybe I just prefer my Zelda games be a little bit more streamlined, a little bit more uh, condensed, a little bit less, uh, less fat on the bones, you know, just kind of cut off everything that doesn't need to be there. And what you're left with is just a really tight, elegant Zelda game. And, uh, you know, this is one that I can definitely see myself coming back to in the future. And um, I mean, really, like if somebody is just looking for like a Zelda game to play over a week or a weekend or something like this is probably a pretty good place to start because, um, you know, it's not quite as narratively satisfying as a lot of the other Zelda games, but I, I think it just gets down to what makes Zelda so good very quickly and it maintains a real nice momentum all the way through maybe broken up by that one like retrieving the book side quest but regardless i think that you know there's just a lot of a uh, lot to like here and i came away a uh, very happy player so i'm happy to have played it josh your summary um this this was a big surprise for me much like ryan um i i didn't really know what to expect um the lack of conversation around the game just led me to think you know this is probably just going to be a mediocre zelda experience nothing bad nothing particularly good but okay um i know the game got you know quite a few good reviews back in the day but there are plenty of games that have gotten good reviews back in the day where the word of mouth slowly transformed and uh, I was mm. worried that this would be that uh, situation but I I ended up falling in love with Minish Cap I, I think it has yeah. some really strong um, dungeon design I think the bosses for the most part are really successful um, I think uh, the implementation of the Minish idea of shrinking down Link is largely very successful. Um, the one point of criticism, and I, f I think this is the thing that holds it back from being um, something that I hold in the same regard as like Wind Waker, Majora's Mask, or, or those type of titles, is that 
Minish Cap doesn't have the same sense of place that those games have. Um, Wind Waker mm. and A Link to the Past especially really sold me on their world and, and that that sense of being in a, in a really magical, beautiful world. Whereas, a, whereas this, the overworld kind of existed to facilitate um, the game design, but that game design is really, really strong. And I would encourage anyone who's kind of looked at Minish Cap and thought, um, maybe this is the Zelda I can skip. I, I would say don't skip this one. I think this is a thoroughly enjoyable experience. Um, and it's really compelling, well-paced, and so, so so much so that I managed to get through this in, in about a week and well before the podcast because it just it gripped me from start to finish. How nice. Let's conclude with Leah. Yeah, I'm going to echo a lot of uh, a lot of what's already been said. I, I didn't have <laughs> really any expectations for Minish Cap going in, um, and I ended up really enjoying it. Uh, it, it was not so difficult or so expanded that it felt like I was really pushing to get through it, even though I was working on a tighter time limit than I, I normally might yeah. have. I, it didn't it didn't feel like pressure because I was really enjoying my time with it. And it felt like I was always kind of making progress as opposed to sometimes, you know, if, if you get lost or get stuck or find yourself wandering back and forth along a, a big empty area or, you know, in search of something that you can't quite locate that you need to get into the next area. It never really felt like I was wasting time when I was playing. There was always kind of something that was pushing me toward that final goal. And I liked that. It, it, it felt like, um, it, it, it felt like I was doing something, but I wasn't. I wasn't really stressing out about doing something. If that if that makes any sense there, um, and the, the difficulty level was maybe a little bit lower than some Zelda games, but that's kind of nice every once in a while. I don't think that it has to be supremely difficult in order to be satisfying, um, and it, it was not so low that it was boring, um, which I, I also found very nice. Uh, it was a good thing to play. It was just nice. It was enjoyable. It was a good experience. And uh, I, I definitely recommend it. Um, I, I think that uh, if you like that kind of style of Zelda game, the, uh, the, um, the six, or I guess it'd be 16 bit. Yeah. The, the, the pixelish uh, art style. Uh, mm. If you like that type, then this is, this is going to really be a good thing. I, I do echo that maybe don't try to get 100%. Um, that's probably going to drive you crazy, but uh, but I, I would say it's definitely worth a playthrough. It's it's built to support Wonderful. that kind of casual, not, not even casual, but less yeah. than hardcore uh, style of play. Yeah. Yeah, true. And yes, uh, gives us perhaps, um, you know, for those of us who had some concerns about uh, the director of the oracle games and maybe some of the ds handheld games and so on uh, being the director of breath of the wild uh here he was perhaps you know meeting a lot of um a lot of zelda expectations as the director uh hidimaro for uh, so yeah interesting times uh so it just remains for me leon i won't be with you for the next uh three podcasts uh, i'll leave you in the capable hands of uh, other members of the cana rinse team before returning for broken sword uh, but until then i'd like to thank josh ryan and leah and to tell you that issue 240 
uh, will be from the wild mind which brought you deadly premonition it's it's d4 dark dreams don't die <laughs>